Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Yes, it is, and welcome back. One of the things I look forward to every Monday is checking in with Brandon Weikert. Brandon J. Weikert is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He is the publisher of The Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com. It's free. And uh, the author of an upcoming book coming out a little bit later this year, which I kind of wanted to start on, if that's okay. It's titled yeah. – yeah, is that good with you? I want to work in reverse. Yeah. When, when is your new book coming out, The Shadow War, Ron's Quest for uh, Supremacy? It's coming out in September of 22 great. this year. Great, 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 yeah, great. The fall. Shadow War, Ron's Quest for Supremacy. The reason I wanted to start there, Brandon, is – I'm only noticing here and there little little pieces about the ongoing attempt to reach a nuclear deal with Iran. And while there is so much news flooding the zone on other things, mostly domestic these days from this administration, I worry about the thing we're not looking at. I'm always worried about the thing we're not discussing. You know, what page is the page one story on in The Washington Post, if you will? Um so with that in mind, there was an interesting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, the first I've seen in a long time. I don't know if you agreed with it or liked it or not or even saw it, but it was uh, from uh, Richard uh, Goldberg uh, just uh, just today. And one of the things he's talking about is that this administration seems to be playing a lot of games with what sanctions it may or may not lift or continue right. to impose on Iran. And the latest is an odd one, which is it seems like there's an effort to lift sanctions on the IRGC, the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps, but not one of its outposts, the Quds Force, which is, uh, I guess stands right. for Jerusalem Force, playing these kinds of little games that I, I'm guessing, given the ideology and fungibility of how money works in terrorist-sponsoring regimes – the distinction probably doesn't matter that much to Iran. But anyway, your thoughts on all of this, if you don't mind. I think the Biden administration, the Iran policy is categorically a disaster. Um, I think that they are they are leading us into a place where we now have no choice but to cede the region uh, to not just Iran, but Russia and China. I thought it was interesting, and it might have been in the Wall Street Journal today, or it might have been another publication this morning as I was doing my sort of morning rundown. I I saw that piece that you're mentioning. But paired with it, at least in the Internet, was another piece where the Saudi ambassador to the United States is quoted on air. Uh, They did an interview, I think, with PBS or or one of the American networks, in which they said that uh, Riyadh... uh, no longer believes under Joe Biden that the relationship with America is healthy or viable. Okay. And so you now have a situation, and this is directly tethered, in my opinion, Saudi Arabia is an imperfect ally, but it is an ally nonetheless. It is a key ally of ours in the region. And you now, because of direct 
Biden administration policies vis-a-vis Iran, you now have a situation where the entire American-built Middle East order is collapsing, sort of the final nail in the coffin that began with our our ill-fated Iraq invasion in 2003, that it's now being completely finalized uh, with Biden's Iran concession. Iran wants the bomb. And they want the bomb for a couple of reasons, a few reasons. The first reason is it is a deterrent. They know, as evidenced by North Korea versus, say, Libya or Saddam's Iraq, they know that in Iran, if they have at least a a small arsenal of nuclear weapons, the Americans and their allies will not be willing to use military force against them. Then there's the other component, the, the, the compellent component, which is that Iran's leaders want to rewrite and redefine the regional order in their favor, and they are willing to use nuclear brinkmanship against the Israelis, against the Sunni Arab states, against the Americans in order to achieve it. And this is linked to the first point, which is that they know ultimately Western powers are allergic to using force against nuclear arms to become, like the Biden administration is about to let them become. And the third point, the scariest point, is, in my opinion, the point that we always overlook, and many analysts, and I know many of them, I went to school with many of them, in the intelligence community, many of them poo-poo the entire religious component to the regime. They say that's not really an important factor, and I disagree. Uh, The mullahs who lead Iran, uh, I think, view nuclear weapons as a liberating element, an element that will not only allow for them to seek historical retribution against their their holy enemies, uh, the Jews of Israel, the Sunni Arabs, and the Christians of Europe and the United States, if there are any left in Europe, uh, coupled with this religious need to free the, 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 the 12th imam from the well that he was occluded in when he was murdered uh, several, almost, what, a thousand years ago? Several hundred, no, I'm sorry, several hundred years ago. And there is that religious ideological component. And those three things taken together, in my opinion, make the Biden administration's attempt to basically do this deal where they will let Iran have nuclear weapons. They'll give them a pathway to the bomb. They will basically let Iran's military become a normalized force so long as they play nice with us and our friends. Uh, I think this is a suicide pact. I think this is mania. I think this really is Neville Chamberlain. Um, convincing himself that he can work with Adolf Hitler, and we all know how that goes. I want to circle back, uh, Brandon, uh, to the Iran part of this and some of the things, even the leadership of Iran, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, is saying in a moment. Let me bookmark it now that you've mentioned Saudi Arabia for a moment because I want to ask a little bit about our relationship with Saudi Arabia and um, you having mentioned it. Um, I, I well remember after 9-11 and for, you know, a good, I don't know, 10 or 12 years after, a lot of the thinking in Washington, really throughout the country, but I mean you were, you were, you were part and parcel of, of as much of this as I was, I'm sure. A lot of yeah. the, uh, the uh, what would you call them, uh, salons, a lot of the panels, a lot of the conferences were about removing ourselves from Saudi dependence. Right. A lot. And not 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 because we blamed the entire regime for 9-11, but that it was a dangerous enough regime that our dependence on them was uh, it was going to continue to be problematic, to put it no yeah. higher. 
we got that. We finally did that. We achieved that. And right. in a weird way, you you just tell me where I'm wrong and always feel free to correct me because you, you read things much more closely than I. But in a weird way, when we decoupled our energy needs from Saudi Arabia, they seemed to want to approach us more so. They seemed to want to modernize a little bit more. That seems to have happened either because of or around the same time. They're, they're yeah. moderate moderacy <laughs> their limited moderacy yes. if you will yes. that has been reversed again and now yes. what's weird is it's not us refusing to take saudi's calls it's their refusing to take ours exactly. Am I, it, this this is this is an irony of not long yes. ago history but history before our very eyes it's just very yes. odd to me well, I think also people need to remember there's a great book and a BBC documentary series called The Path of Blood, okay. The Path to Blood. Okay. Uh, and it was this incredible on-the-ground reporting done by these two guerrilla journalists where they were literally in Saudi Arabia for the entire duration of Saudi Arabia's war on al-Qaeda. And what we learn from this wonderful book and, and, and related documentary is that it is true that the Saudi royal family basically had an implicit deal with the Wahhabi radicals of Saudi Arabia, right. which basically said, hey, look, as long as you don't do jihadi revolution here in the kingdom, we'll look the other way, we'll help fund you, you can do whatever you want around the world, even in the United States, but you can't, you can't crap where you eat. You can't, you can't undermine the royal family. And that agreement existed... A long, you know, for a long time since the the, the Grand Mosque seizure in the 1979, yeah. all the way to, all the way to 2003. And in 2003, what happened was Bin Laden and Al Qaeda in Saudi Arabia, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, rather, they broke the deal. Right. And they started killing Saudis. They started killing Americans and Westerners in Riyadh, in places in Saudi Arabia. And that at that moment, the royal family completely any pretense of working alongside or looking the other way uh, as al-Qaeda and their Islamist friends fundraised and lived and did business in in Saudi Arabia. And it was like a you know complete 180. Hold that thought. That, this started. is big. This is important. Can you hold that thought? Let me take the commercial yeah. break. I want to pick up on it on the other side. I'm Seth Liebson. He is Brandon J. Weikert, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. For those of you looking for a really great, unique investment opportunity with a great return for investors, I want you to check out my friends at Why Refry. They are my friends. I've met with them several times and kicked their tires a bunch to fully understand what it is they're offering, and it is, as I say, really great. I'm talking about a fixed, no-load interest rate up to 10.25% for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Why Refi helps people who are doing their best to dig out a debt the right way by doing the right thing to pay off their debts, to do so with dignity, even getting their FICO scores fixed along the way. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm run by really good people who are doing very well by helping others and you can too. I'll only endorse a product like this after a thorough and complete review and by getting to know the quality and ability of the people involved and they are the tops. What more can I say? How about this? Just log on to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com or call 855 316 
3087. Local company, you can visit them. You won't get a sales pitch. They're just happy to talk to you about what they're doing. Log into investyrefi.com to learn more. Give them a call, 855-316-3087, and tell them Seth sent you. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. We're talking about uh, really his upcoming book, uh, Shadow War, and uh, we're talking about Iran. And, and now, Brandon, our relationship with Saudi Arabia, as you were mentioning just before the break. Things changed with the Saudis' right. uh, agreement implicit or who knows, for all we know, explicit in their own way, implicit and right. explicitly between the leadership, the king, the royals, right. and the Wahhabis. Go ahead, sir. Right. And so basically what happened was after 2003, the notion that Saudi Arabia, at least the government, uh, and most of the people now, and that, that they were these anti-American, you know, zealots who loved what happened on 9-11, whatever factor that was uh, before and on 9-11 went away the moment al-Qaeda started killing Saudis and killing foreigners like Americans on Saudi ground, uh, and the kingdom went full bore against uh, against the, the al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and really, I mean, it's the stuff of legends is, is what, what a lot of these Saudi counterterrorism uh, units were doing, uh, you know, fighting, fighting al-Qaeda. And they became a real partner uh, in the war on terror after sort of dragging their feet. Um, and so I think that we need to keep in mind that, um, you know, not only was the fact that the, 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 the case of us sort of distancing or decoupling from them vis-a-vis the oil not only was that a driver for why suddenly Riyadh was wanting to be buddy-buddy with us sincerely, um, but also the fact that I think after 2003, the royal family sort of realized that, uh-oh, we, if, if, if there's an Islamist revolution, it's likely going to happen either in Pakistan and or here in Saudi Arabia. And if it happens in Saudi Arabia, uh, the royal family, the House of Saud, is not going to survive that. We're going to be the target number one. So we better start going after al-Qaeda and the other jihadi networks that won't uh, sort of keep their activities in the nonviolent uh, political realm. And so uh, big, big change after 03. And I think those two reasons are why Saudi Arabia became a much stronger ally. And then you throw in their fear, understandable, of Iran. Remember, even Jamal Khashoggi uh, was, was hated Iran and was very much in favor of Mohammed bin Salman's war in Yemen. Uh, and he viewed it as he, he told the BBC at one point in 2015 that uh, he viewed uh, the Saudi war in Yemen against Iran as akin to how he thought Churchill viewed uh, the, the British uh, intervention in Europe against um, Nazi, in favor of Poland against Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. that that's how he viewed Iran. So Khashoggi, who hated MBS, uh, was, you know, pro-MBS's war against Iran in Yemen. Obviously, there is a component of, of a sect, a large sect of Saudi society that very badly wants to be American friend uh, because of the anti-terror and because of the anti-Iran uh, factor. Okay. Okay. Let me go back to Iran now then for a moment because it seems to me if one of the failures that led to 9-11, one of the many failures that led to 9-11 – was a lot of people not connecting dots, but also a lot of people not taking 
you know, the words of the Islamists seriously, the statements, the actions, they weren't taking them seriously. And, you know, when they right. when they failed to take out the WTC in 93 and said they'd come back, we kind of laughed or at least ignored it, ignored it, not laughed, right. ignored it. Uh, do you worry about what's taking place and being said in Iran now and the Western media not covering it? I'll tell you why I ask. I'm looking at a speech that was given about a month ago by uh, Khamenei. Uh, it was to Iran's assembly of experts. Memory translated it. You like memory, I assume, M-E-M-R-I, like their translations. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it said the um, in, in a speech where he's talking about the arms of power, he says, quote, the nuclear issue is a scientific issue. It is about scientific progress and our future technology. Soon, it will not take long, just a few years, we will need the product of this nuclear energy and in Full scale, full scale, full scale. Um, this should worry us, and it seems like we're just chugging along as if they're not saying things like this. Well, you know, the nuclear energy canard, uh, I always tell people, you know, how would you feel if uh, Kim Jong-un said, I'm not building nuclear bombs, I'm building nuclear reactors so that I can have alternative energy. Um, I think most people would be understandably suspicious of that. Um, and so, you know, when the Iranians even start talking about the nuclear energy canard, I sort of just roll my eyes. Um, the bottom line is this is a way for them to get, as he said, full-scale nuclear weapons capability. They do not care. This is a major oil producer. They do not care about net nuclear energy. They want nuclear weapons. Yeah. And so, you know, this is – and if we let up on the Iranian regime, they are going to get nuclear weapons, I think, a lot sooner than a few years. In fact, I think they may already have rudimentary versions now. Um, but they will have active, capable, growing nuclear weapons arsenal, I think, as early as a year and a half. Yeah. I don't think a few years. I think a year to a year and a half at this rate. Um, and so – uh, you know, this is a, and you listen to what they talk about, that term full scale. Yeah. You know, this, this is, they're, they're telling us what they're going to do. Yeah. Like Hitler. Yep. Hitler told us what yep. he was going to do. Yep. You know, Stalin told us that the communists never really were, I mean, they lied about a they're lot They're proud of, of what they think and they are not it's, shy. Right. Well, think about it. If you believe you're in a holy war, as yeah. Kamani and his people do, and you're fighting the devil, um, you almost want to let them know of course. that I'm because it's the devil, and you want to let the devil know that hey, I'm coming for you, and yep. I'm on the side of the angel. Yep. And so that's how we have. We don't understand it today because we're postmodern. Uh, we're run by a bunch of secular progressives who can't fathom religion. That's you know, point. outside of maybe the Episcopal faith. Uh, it's very real. <laughs> let me let me take a quick break. That's funny. I'm Seth Leaps and he's Brandon J. Weikert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He's the author of a book, uh, I hope you know, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. We're talking about his forthcoming book coming out this fall, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for supremacy, uh, throw a question at him uh, regarding Ukraine too before uh, before um, we leave. Uh, Brandon, um, you said something really interesting about the West's or at least American leaderships often um, 
disinclination or inability to understand uh, theocratic quests or for that matter, maybe even just ideology. And that was something that I thought some of Reagan's people got really well. I'm thinking of someone like Gene Kirkpatrick. Um, I think it was the inability uh, to understand ideology and theocratic uh, notions of of dominance uh, that may have helped slow walk us into 9-11. I worry about it when it comes to things like a perhaps renewed Cold War with Russia. I worry about it, of course, with Iran and the Middle East, right? Why is it we refuse to believe what they tell us? Is it because we don't want to, we can't imagine it, we can't fathom it, or because it requires of us – um, action uh, or equal ideology. I mean, it takes me back. Last last filibustered point here, Brandon. Sorry, takes me back to my initial concerns about us getting involved in the Russia-Ukraine uh, fight uh, against Russia. In the sense that I don't want a country that doesn't believe in its cause going up against a country that does. If that makes sense, it does. It makes perfect sense. And I I think uh, you, you you gave three options. For why, and I think it's all of the above. I think that uh, it re- the, the biggest is that it requires action, action that we are not ready or willing to take for various reasons. I think also the fact that we live in a po- postmodern, secular, somewhat Western society um, that we just simply can't fathom that there's these sort of pre-modern ideologies. Um, and so that that and then, of course, we're just ignorant. We, we, we can't see beyond the fence. Uh, and yet we go around blundering into different situations globally. And we really just don't have an understanding of what we're doing. Um, we're sort of like the big like, a, like an oversized toddler on the world stage, sort of just throwing our weight around, but not really not really thinking about sort of the ramifications and how we could use our power most effectively. Should we use our power in some instances? Uh, You know, the Syrian conflict, for instance, I was one of the people saying we should not get involved at all. Uh, You know, you have to know not only when to use your power, but when not to. And we're led by people from both parties who really don't get any of that. Um, And I think the biggest thing, though, is laziness. They don't want to take actions that are that are messy or that may be uncomfortable or that might, you know, impact their bottom line. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons why there's so much inertia on China. We're still sort of in this, this, this automatic position with China of just, hey, free trade is always great. Um, and we're slowly starting to turn away from that, but it's one step forward, five step back. Uh, and so I think that it's that inertia and it's, it's just ignorance, arrogance, and um, and the laziness uh, that really account for why we behave this way, why we fail to understand what the Iranian regime is and what it's doing. Remember, the leader of Iran, the president of Iran, rather, who works for the Ayatollah Khomeini, um, or Khamenei, um, uh, is a man named Raisi, Ibrahim Raisi, who was a, the equivalent of a prosecutor. He was the equivalent of a judge at one point in the Iranian system. Well, what do we know about him? And I talk about this in my my forthcoming book, as you know. What we know about him is that in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, as the revolution was taking hold, as it was taking power, he was notorious. He was a torturer at one of the largest prisons in the regime, and he took great joy in torturing pregnant women. 
mm. um, uh, physically just doing ungodly things to them, uh, women who were believed to be part of the Fedayeen uh, e-Kalk uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the Mujahideen e-Kalk, which mm-hmm. are resistance movements yep. to the Iran regime. Yep. And so, th- and the reason he did that wasn't because he's necessarily wanted to go out and hurt pregnant women. It was because he believed the religion demanded yeah. purity and these people were impure and they had to be punished accordingly. Let me pause and it right there. Let me, let me pause it right there because if I can ask you on the other side of the break, it dawns on me there might be one other thing going on too. Maybe not the biggest, but I think it's there if you could answer this or address this on the other side too. Is there is a bit of a disinformation, misinformation campaign in the West, in America, trying to cleanse, sanitize all that as so much Islamophobia. I'm thinking of Council on American Islamic Relations types. I'm talking about the propaganda you get from the Ilan Omars of the world. That's going on too, isn't it? Uh, we'll pick that up on the other side. I'm Seth. He's Brandon Weicker. We'll be right back. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He is a columnist for the Asia Times, America Greatness, a lot of outlets. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T is how he spells Weikert. Brandon, uh, just before the break, I was asking you, is, is, it, is it possible that one of the other reasons we're resistant to uh, dealing as strongly with enemy regimes as they claim to want to deal with us and threaten in dealing with us that there is – I don't know what you would call it, a, a, a form of an intimidation and sanitation campaign going on in the West, in this country, organizations like CAIR, uh, Council of American Islamic um, yeah. Relations, uh, the speeches of Ilan Omar. I mean, to listen to them, you would think that uh, America is much more the oppressor of gays and women and uh, abortion rights than regimes like Iran, which I don't think, with their domestic views, they'd last 24 hours in. Well, I mean, in Iran, they have cranes that they set up, and then they strangulate the homosexuals that they catch hanging from the cranes for all to see and cheer. Right. Uh, So, I mean, it's stuff that would make the Taliban blush. Right. Right. so, you know, but to yeah, talk about that, Care would say, is bigoted and racist. Well, it, well they would debunk what, what, if, if Media Matters or whatever that yeah, organization right. that, if they would try to probably sit there and try to say, well, and actually, let me get a fact check. That's not so. Um, <laughs> the, the, fa- the, right. the fact of the matter is. They would say in Tennessee. We, <laughs> yeah, right. right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, for 40 years, uh, the not just Islamists, but the Chinese. The Russians, of course, are masters of this. Uh, America's enemies have figured out how to weaponize uh, our free speech. Yeah, right. Uh, and the yeah. idea that you can have access to your leaders uh, through lobbyists is what they've done. They, you know, China, we talked about this before, have hired lobbyists. Iran and the, the Muslim Brotherhood and these other groups have created foundations. Previously, they had uh, the Holy Land Foundation, which thankfully was we were able to kind of figure out what it was. Uh, the FBI, but there are far subtler versions uh, that, of that, that things that are designed to disarm Western audiences and ultimately Western policymakers uh, to such a point that they not only stop fighting jihadis, in this case, around the world, but that they actually start to side in the line with them. Right. And we saw this play out during the Obama administration, right. where Mr. Obama brought in 
a very uh, uh, well-connected with the Muslim Brotherhood side of things uh, uh, analyst or advisor during the Syrian civil war, during the Arab Spring, who basically pushed Obama and the team and convinced them that, uh, hey, we have to support the head choppers fighting against Bashar al-Assad in Syria, and we have to oust Muammar Gaddafi. Well, yeah, Assad in Syria is a bad guy. Gaddafi was awful. However, the alternatives who we were supporting were al-Qaeda and ISIS and worse. And that was precisely because, in part, of these groups of advisors, these outside organizations that the Obama administration were reaching out to who were supposedly affiliated with CARE and these other Muslim, uh, you know, understanding groups. Well, it turned out that many of these people had connections to the Muslim Brotherhood, mm -hmm. and they had an agenda mm -hmm. to get us to support jihadi movements so that the jihad would spread mm -hmm. all over the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and all at the t all at the same time telling us we were being paranoid and Islamophobic for concerning right. ourselves with it. I yes. mean, Elon Omar is the closest thing to the Muslim Brotherhood's representative in the Congress uh, that we've ever had. Right, and uh, you know, I, I just I'll leave it at that. Okay. I, I don't know for sure, you know, if she is, but. But she has a lot of bizarre connections. And there's and no difference between a, what she says and what they say. I mean, it is the ben same. And Ben Weingarten has yeah. a great book uh, called The American Ingrave, yep. which I recommend everybody get, because I think he really did the yeoman's work on yep. exposing her. He sure and our did. friend David Reboy also has done some great work exposing her. Yep. <clears throat> yep. Frequent guests here, although not as yeah. frequent as you. You're our regular. <laughs> you have full tenure, Brandon. You have full tenure. <laughs> Hopefully you guys aren't tired of this. <laughs> Never. Talk to me. That's an interesting point of segue to the issue of free speech. Uh, you posted something on Twitter briefly about Elon Musk. I'd love you. You spent a lot of time in social media uh, by necessity and by profession. Believe uh, me, by necessity, not by choice. <laughs> it's both. It's we work because we need to, Brandon. It's necessity. It's all necessity. Talk to me a little bit about any thoughts you have. I didn't ask you your thoughts on Elon Musk and Twitter. Um, the first thing we need to remember is the reason the world's richest man, a man I have a lot of respect for, because particularly his space stuff. Yeah. Uh, the reason that he bought Twitter was partly because he got angry that his friends at the Babylon Bee got banned, got right. canceled, right. shadow banned. Right. And so had it not been for that, it's likely he would have never done it. Then we also have to remember that he was kind of pushed into this by his friends Peter Thiel and some of these other more right-wing tech gurus. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also have to remember that, that, that Elon, uh, he's, he's, he is doing the right thing. I support him 100%. I love that he's aggravating all the right people. But part of me can't help but to marvel at the fact that five or seven years ago, he was very much on the left. Yep. And, uh, you know, he's made it clear that he was an Obama supporter unapologetically even today. Uh, so we have to be mindful of that as conservatives. Uh, and then we also have to be mindful of the fact uh, that we should not want to live in a world where basically the town square is nothing more than a hot potato to be thrown and passed between competing billionaires with, with different... Immigrant uh, billionaires, to wit. Yes, yes. One and immigrant so, billionaire, right. theoretically, is who we rely on to save free speech in and America. And what, yeah. what happens when he decides to listen to Barack Obama right. on an issue right. 
Right. And suddenly we conservatives again find ourselves in a... So look, I think it's great what he's doing. I think he's probably for now become the greatest free speech advocate and defender. Yeah. I support him fully. This is the only way forward for now. But ultimately, we're going to need to talk about what happens, uh, uh, you know, or, or how we should basically regulate uh, these tech companies. And I think one of them is to classify social media companies as a public utility yeah. and, and to regulate it as yeah. such, because we can't just rely on billionaires. Yeah, I don't want that debate to want. go away because Elon Musk bought Twitter. I'm with you on right, that. Right, and that's my concern. Yeah, yeah. That's my concern. We share the same concern. Brandon, we uh, got a really interesting email from a listener that wanted to follow up on his question about supply chains and China and, and yeah. Taiwan and all that. Except we kind of we kind of ran out of time, and I'm I'm just wondering if you don't mind. Can you do one more segment with us? Absolutely. Uh, if I'm you don't to. mind, it's a short one. But basically, yep. the question is: Will the we'll do it on the other side of this break? Will the Russian attack on Ukraine further empty the cupboard, leaving it bare or mostly bare when China moves against Taiwan? Ukraine is important because it grows food. Taiwan makes the stuff of modernity, and after it is gone, will we be able to manufacture anything? Is the Ukraine war preparing the way for China and Taiwan, our listener asks. I'll let you take a quick stab at that when we come back, which we will do also quickly. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the good people of Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. They're fruits and veggies. I take them every day. The veggies are in capsule form, as are the fruits, of course, the cayenne, everything from cayenne peppers to kale, garlic, spinach, wheatgrass. You get the equivalent of 10 servings and fruits and vegetables from one daily dose. Just take it once a day, Balance of Nature. I do it every day. Keep my health uh, strong and my immunity boosted. 100% natural. Balance of Nature. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Uh, Brandon, thanks. Uh, Brandon Weikert, thanks for staying with us. So quick question. Uh, if uh, Big question, but quickly if we can. Is the, Ukraine, <laughs> if the Ukraine war, is the Ukraine war preparing the way for China in Taiwan? Yeah. Okay. Well, the short answer is yes, and because of our conversation last week and the caller in particular who initiated this line of questioning, I actually did a, spent a week in deep dives into our logistical issues vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, wrote an article that's being published tomorrow oh, online at the Washington Times, good. will be in print the next day. Basically, the, the, the threat that we're facing is that America is going to be defeated by depletion that we basically we don't have manufacturing capabilities like we did in World War II. We spent 50 years deindustrializing not just the civilian economy, but the military economy as well. And therefore, now we have a real almost World War situation going on with one or two or a handful of the same systems being pulled on more so than others by the Ukrainians in this case. And now they're at lows. We don't have enough of them. And now the defense contractors are saying, hey, it's, not only do we not have enough of them for the long run if this conflict continues, we don't have enough if we ever need them or if Taiwan needs them. And, hey, we may not have them for years. And now today it was announced that these, these artillery pieces that were supposed to be sent to Taiwan as part of a first shipment of our modernization of Taiwan's coastal defenses well, the Biden administration said, we can't send them to you, Taiwan, until 2026 because Ukraine's going to need them and we don't have enough to yeah. go around. Yeah. And so, so the, the answer to your caller's question is, 
the Russians, whether they meant to or not, have set us up in such a way where supply chain issues for years are going to plague us, and the arsenal of democracy is running dry, and so it's so bad, and we're so deindustrialized that when China decides to go into Taiwan, they just might be able to have a much easier time because yeah. we don't have the weapons we need yeah. on hand anymore. All right, that's a hugely important point. Subsidiary to that, Brandon, is the point for the audience, which is you ask a good question of our guest, you might just get the guest to write it up in a national <laughs> outlet, as, you're do- as you've done, which we thank you for, as we thank you for everything you. you are and do. Brandon J. Weicker, bless you, sir. Until next week, Thank you. have well. a great one. Thank you.